Our Bible reading today is from 1 John chapter 2, from verses 28 up to chapter 3, verse 10. So now, little children, remain in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins and there is no sin in him. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin, because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, this morning I want to focus on what does it mean to abide in Christ? Uh, so how do, we, how do we actually abide in Jesus? Now, to understand the question, we need to understand the words of the question. And so um, uh, I'm going to ask the question first, what, what does just abiding mean? Like what does it mean to abide in Jesus? And so in verse 28 we read, Now little children abide in him, this is from the ESV, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So what does it mean to abide in Jesus? Now abiding is not a word that we really use much anymore uh, because it's sort of fallen out of practice in English. And so we need to kind of define the terms before we can sort of wrestle with the ideas. Now, abiding is a word which means something like choosing to remain or um, deciding to tarry 
And tarry is not a word we use much anymore, but to tarry is to, to kind of choose to hang out, to slowly leave uh, because, you know, you don't want to necessarily go. It's kind of choosing to stay, choosing to remain, to dwell in a place. There's an active component, a choice is involved. And so that's what the word means. That's sort of its dictionary definition, if you like. But to really capture the essence of this word a bit better, I think it's helpful for us to think about what, what um, abiding kind of feels like, what scenarios we might have in which one can abide. On the one hand, abiding with someone is a kind of comfortable joy in a good relationship. It's wanting to stay in someone's presence. For the Christian, abiding in Jesus is a comfortable joy in Jesus' presence. It, it feels kind of like this. Uh, one of my good friends, uh, who's the pastor of Mount Evelyn Church, who happens to be visiting us this morning, uh, when I wrote this, I didn't know that was going to be the case. Uh, so, sorry, Lucas. Um, but when we get together, we spend hours talking about topics that are neither too high nor too low to talk about. You know, there's nothing that is kind of beyond um, our ability to discuss. Everything from the uh, likely geopolitical ramifications of the ongoing war in Gaza to whether it's better to live in the country or the city. You know, um, how you should discipline your kids or whatever. It, it, we just have a rapport. It's one of those people I can talk to for ages. And when we get together, I often choose to tarry there. So on Friday night, we were, we were there, and I looked at my watch, and it was 10 a.m., and I said I should probably go home. And then on my way out, it suddenly became 1.30. And so that is choosing to tarry. It's a comfortable joy in the presence of someone you enjoy spending time with. And that's what our time with Jesus actually should be like. It is actually possible to have that kind of relationship with Christ. If you've been a Christian for some amount of time, you will possibly have had experiences. I think you will have had experiences like this. It can happen perhaps in your Bible reading, you know, or maybe it's in your prayer time or a spiritual retreat day. Maybe you're listening to, you know, some worship music and you're kind of spiritually transported into a place where there is a palpable feeling of God's presence there with you. Maybe you're at a Christian conference or a convention or something and it's just so good that you don't want to go home. And in that moment, you can't ever imagine ever doing anything sinful or bad or against God's will again. And so we capture these glimpses of this kind of abiding feeling, abiding in Jesus' presence in our lives through these things. And we can cultivate that by pursuing these places and spaces and practices that allow us to enter into uh, this kind of abiding experience. We can and should cultivate these things. But they are just glimpses. This is not, for most of us, I think, or for any of us, the ongoing experience of what it means to be a Christian. But one day it will be. One day that joy, that comfortableness in God's presence is going to be our constant reality and that's something we can really look forward to. And that's one side of what it means to abide in Jesus. But the other side, I think, is much more our reality today. 
So on the one side, it's this choosing to remain in his company because it's just so good and you don't want to kind of leave his relationship. It's an act of choice. It's a good choice and it's kind of nice and wonderful. But there is another way of abiding in Jesus, which I think is what our passage talks about more. And in this case, abiding in Christ feels a lot more like clinging to a solid rock in the middle of an ocean with a chaotic storm around you, raging all about you, threatening to overwhelm you and threatening to kill you and drown you. It is to cling to uh, kind of the truth, the thing that, that, will, that you can hold on to, your anchor in the midst of a raging chaotic storm. And the storm in this case is the world and all the kind of chaos it offers us as bait to, let, to want us to let go of the rock. And now there's a particular bait being offered to the people in John's day in this book uh, he's writing to. And what they were saying, there were these teachers, these false teachers that were coming into the church and the bait that they were offering was saying, uh, you, can, you can say you believe in Jesus and you can just keep on sinning. Your life doesn't have to look any different because of your faith. You can believe like a saint but live like a sinner. Go on, they would say. You've been forgiven by Christ anyway. He's already paid for your sins. You may as well sin as much as you like. Your moral life doesn't matter as long as you're cognitively believing that Jesus is who he said he is. So what John's doing here is he's writing to them and saying, no, you have to abide in Jesus, to cling to him and his truth, no matter what these people say, no matter what the world says, no matter what these false doctrines are, you stick to the truth, you cling to it as, if it, as if your very life depends on it. And so abiding in Jesus feels sometimes like hanging out with a close dear friend and sometimes it's a kind of fierce grit Desperate clinging, holding on to the truth in the midst of a world that wants to tell you otherwise. And I think our experience of abiding in Jesus is often more like this. Now if it is this kind of hard, active participation, this desperate clinging to the truth of Scripture, which by definition causes us to reject the world and every, uh, you know, everything around us who wants to continue force-feeding us this false doctrine. If ab abiding in Christ is kind of hard, then why would we want to do it? Why do we need to abide in Jesus? Well, that's the second thing I want us to think about this morning. We've seen what it means to abide. Now let's look at why we need to do it. I read here from verse 4. Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he, uh, that he was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. 
So why do we abide in Jesus? Well, firstly, because our, the way we live our lives, says John, proves whose we are. And secondly, Jesus came to destroy everything that's not of him. Okay, so firstly, he, the way we live our lives prove, proves whose we are, that, way, that we belong to Christ. Uh, verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as Christ is righteous. And the one who commits sin is of the devil, and the devil has sinned from the beginning. This is the reality of the Christian life. If you belong to Jesus, you will do what is right. If you sin, you belong to Satan. That's actually what John says here. Now, John is not here talking about any kind of sin. He's not saying that Christians need to be perfect in order to belong to Jesus. That's not the point he's trying to make. What he's saying is that if you belong to Jesus, if the Holy Spirit truly lives in your heart, then you will change. You will bear the fruit of a transformed life. Maybe some sins will instantly fall away. Some will change slowly over time. But more and more, you will practice righteousness. More and more, you will want to be perfect for Jesus. More and more, you will look like him. You will be more saintly. You will live righteously. There will be this kind of gradual, upwards moral life. Now, it's not a straight line from the bottom to the top. It sort of does a curve over here, and then there's a dip and whatever. But over time... There is a slow progression, gradual increase in the way you live for God. If you look at your life and you, and you ask yourself, how has the Holy Spirit convicted me of sin? Has He changed my mind about something? Has God helped me to love someone who was unlovable or something like that? If you ask yourself that question and you can't answer it, well, then it may be true that you are not saved. You don't have the Holy Spirit living in you. And if this is the case for you, if you can't see, if you look over the back of uh, your life, if you can't see that you have changed as a result of your faith, then you need to urgently and earnestly cry out to God and call Him to save you, to put your trust in Christ Jesus, to turn from your sin, because Scripture is clear. If you belong to Jesus, you will show a change of character. You will change. You will grow because the Holy Spirit changes you into the person God wanted you to be. And so the way you live your life actually shows whose you are. Abiding in Jesus proves you are one of God's children rather than a child of Satan. So we need to abide in Jesus because it shows who, that we belong to him. And the second thing that goes hand in hand with this is that we need to abide in Christ because he came to destroy everything that is not of him. Why did Jesus come? Verse 9. Why did he come? The Son of God... Sorry, verse 8. Uh, the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Friends, we need to realize that most of the way the world works, this chaos storm, if you like, that rages around us, with all its untruth and everything that stands against God, is actually demonic. It belongs to a world order that is ruled by Satan. 
It is of the devil. All the evil that is in this world will though die and will pass away. When Jesus was born, he came so to destroy the work of the devil. He starts that work already on the cross where he defeats death, where God proves that sins are forgiven truly and rightly and he takes the sin of the world on himself. But one day he will come back and he will finish the job. And from time to time, you and I need to be reminded that we are, that, that is the reality. That all those who belong to the devil and all the works that belong to the devil will one day be destroyed. Because we hear all the time, don't we, that we are, as Christians, on the wrong side of history. Have you noticed that this is often how the argument is made? That if we stick to what Scripture says, if we stick to the morality of the Bible, that we are necessarily on the wrong side of history. The discussion goes something like this. Maybe, you know, maybe it's early into the uni years, a first year out of school or something, and so a group of young women are gathered together talking about their Tinder hookups, and the eyes of everyone turns to the Christian young woman in the group and she says courageously, actually, you know what, I'm a Christian, so I'm saving myself for marriage. And the response might be shock, it might be respect, but often the conversation goes like this. Oh, that's so lovely, so old-fashioned. You know, I, I totally respect that, but it's so old-fashioned. Which is just another way of saying that's so out of touch with the times. You're on the wrong side of history. Or perhaps on the other side of campus, a group of people are having a discussion about the nature of reality. And so the Christian says, you know, that he believes in Jesus and his response gets, you know, he gets kind of a guffaw followed by, you know, we used to need God to explain all things, but now we have science. Now we have science. This is this idea that God only exists because he's the God of the gaps, you know, that as humanity has advanced, we've needed God less and less. And the only reason we have God is because we were too stupid or too unadvanced to explain how the seasons worked or why the sun rose or whatever. And so we invented this idea of God. But now we know that the seasons happen because of the tilt of the earth and, and that thunder isn't the result of Zeus throwing a lightning bolt. It's because of the static electricity when the hot air and cold air touches each other or whatever. And the idea is that eventually we're going to completely lose the need for God to explain all things. Because eventually all of reality will have been scientifically described and if we're honest with ourselves, really maybe 90% of what we, uh, believe, well, you know, what we know has already been described this way. Maybe we don't quite know how the brain works, but once we figure that out, we'll be at 100%. And so if we're still believing in God, then really we're pretty dumb because we, we're living like those people in ancient times who were so unadvanced, who didn't have the knowledge of how the world works. So we're on the wrong side of history. And we just need to get with the program and realise that we've more or less discovered everything there is to know. Which incidentally is the same thing that the good Lord Calvin said. And he's often quoted as saying, there, there is nothing new to be discovered in physics now. All that remains is more and more precise measurements. And he said this around the year 1900. How proud and foolish we must be if we think the same. 
But even if science could explain how stuff works, and let's say in another hundred years from now we actually have described how everything works, we will still be no closer to understanding why it all exists. Perhaps science can answer the what and the how, but it cannot answer the deeper question of why. It's only the Christian who can rightly say why all this is here, because God has made it for his glory. But the argument is the same, you're on the wrong side of history. Or perhaps we who stubbornly hold to what is now considered anathema, an evil idea, that God made them male and female, male and female he created them, we are told for goodness sake, it's 2024, get with the program, you're on the wrong side of history. How often this argument is made that we're on the wrong side of history, friends. But do you see how foolish that idea is in light of what John is writing here? He says, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Sin and corruption under which the world is supposed to be run uh, was already defeated when Jesus died on the cross. But when he comes again, all of that will pass away. All that is broken, all that is sinful, all that is against God will be taken and thrown into the lake of fire and those that remain are those that are going to abide in Jesus and will live with him forever. Jesus will come to claim his own. And I would rather tarry with him than choose all the earthly pleasures and corrupt teachings this world gives because it will ultimately be destroyed. And so when we make quaint and old-fashioned ancient decisions to trust in Jesus, to abide in him, to remain in him, to turn from our sin and so on, on that last day, Jesus, when he comes again, he will say to us, come and enter into the eternal life with all the others who have done the same. Enter you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom that was prepared in advance for you since the creation of the world. And will we be on the wrong side of history then? So we abide in Jesus because he came to destroy the works of the devil and he's coming back to claim his own. So we've seen what it means to abide in Jesus. We've seen why we should do it. You know, it shows us shows people who we are, proves who we are, and he will come to claim us one day. But then we need to look at, lastly, how do we actually go about doing this? How do we abide in Jesus? Now, to think about how we actually do it, we need to think about what was going on in the church that John was writing to. So, in his day, there were these false teachers, as we said, who had come into the church and they were trying to deceive the church by teaching them that they can be a Christian, but they can just keep on sinning. In fact, you can live however you want, because just think about it logically, these teachers would say, Jesus died for your sins, past, present and future, so they're covered anyway, and so you can just keep on sinning, it doesn't matter, because it's covered anyway. But friends, we know the Bible has some pretty strong things to say about that idea. But the people in John's day were being led astray by this thought. And so John is writing them to them saying that what abiding in Jesus looks like is clinging to the rock of truth in that context. It's actually living out of the love they have for Jesus and, and 
changing their ways, not listening to these false teachers, clinging to the truth of Scripture, recognising that how we live our lives actually matter. But in our day, things are a little bit different. And we need to think about what the most prevalent false doctrine, if you like, is that affects the church today. And this is what I think it is. I think the most prevalent false doctrine in the church today is that you can be a Christian and you can choose for yourself which parts of Scripture apply to you. And for the rest, you can live however you see fit. So create your own custom version of Christianity with all the good bits you like, you know, maybe Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, that's good, tick, it's in the box. Maybe being set free from your sin, yes, I like that, that's wonderful. Love your neighbour, sounds good, I'll take that. Steward the earth well, yep, that works for me. Social justice matters, yep, sounds good, and so on. We like, you know, we like these things. But maybe we'll just gloss over how following Jesus requires sacrifice or requires a changed life, requires turning from our sin. Maybe we like to skip over those areas of Scripture. We talk about how believers are to hold one another to account, right? To point out for each other, actually brother, sister, what you're doing is against God's will and you should change your way. That seems so judgy, right? Maybe we'll just leave that. Perhaps the most significant chaos storm type thing that the doctrine that the world wants to push onto the church today is about our views of sexuality and gender identity. More and more the world insists that we should throw out those bits of the Bible that are so repressive and intolerant and bigoted really and maybe we can just be tempted away to define a kind of Christianity for ourselves which ignores God's will for the world on these matters. In this climate abiding in Christ is like clinging to a rock in the storm much more than it is spending time with a friend. It's actually choosing to reject the norms of the world and to stick to what the Bible teaches, even though the storm rages all around us. It is to stick with Jesus, stick with Scripture, to believe rightly, even though everyone else tells you that you are wrong and you need to get with the program because you're on the wrong side of history. It is clinging to this rock as if your very life depended on it, because frankly, it does. And to be able to do that, we need to know and when we do that, it proves that we belong to Jesus. And we need to know that Jesus is going to judge all of this and throw it in the eternal lake of fire and he will come to destroy all of this and we don't want to be part of that. We want to stick with him. We need to know those things, but perhaps because we're fallible, we might also want some proof that actually sticking to Jesus works. And so allow me to editorialise for a moment. Here's the truth of the matter. Hanging on to Scripture's truths actually work. They make us happier, they make us healthier, and they do so particularly in the sphere of LGBTQI issues. 
We know this. Our secular scientists have proven it to us. Not only does it work, but those who would disagree with the Bible have shown us that it works. To quote from the LGBT health website of Australia, research has shown that a disproportionate number of LGBTQI Australians experience poorer mental health outcomes and have a higher risk of suicidal behaviours than their peers. This is from their website. Could it be that when we choose to reject God's will for our lives, the truth of scripture, could it be that when we embrace the chaos of false doctrine that tells us we get to define ourselves, that God doesn't define us, could it be that when we do that, it actually affects us in a way that is unhelpful to us? Could it be that when we trust in God, God's word, that it actually protects us in some way? There's a great journal article, very recent, published only two years ago, about depressive symptoms in children across Australia. And in this article, what happened is that the researchers looked at Christian schools versus government and secular independent schools. And they looked at depressive and emotional well-being within those schools. And what they found was that in places that held to strongly Christian principles and philosophy in these schools, the children were significantly less depressed, more well-adjusted, and had significantly better well-being outcomes overall. And in fact, this is specifically what they said. I'll quote in a moment. For this, you need to know that a pro-social behaviour within the context of the article means things like going to church, serving other people, looking after other people, being kind to other people. Okay, so I'm quoting from the argument, uh, from the article. This is, this is verbatim what they say. The findings suggest that involvement in pro-social activities is associated with lower levels of depressed mood. There is evidence suggesting that where culture in schools is linked to curricula with philosophical and existential underpinnings of care and pro-social behaviour, this may protect adolescents from declines in mental health across the secondary school years. And I'll give you the link from Springer if you're interested in reading it more. But in other words, what they're saying is, where the curriculum, where what we teach our children comes from a philosophical and existential foundation of, you know, the Bible, how God said the world should work, and when we actually practice these things in reality, living out our faith, going to church, serving other people, and so on, it's actually good for us. Who would have guessed? It's almost as if God knew what he was doing when he told us how we should live. And this absolutely boggles my mind that despite the fact that we have this data published in peer-reviewed secular journals that are again and again and again show that religious activities, that kids who grow up in strongly religious Christian families are emotionally and mentally better off Again and again and again we see that. For example, this is from the NIH, so biggest funding body that funds research in America for health. In an article entitled, The Role of Religiosity in, family at, uh, in Families at Risk of Depression, it says that teaching kids about Jesus protects their mental and emotional health, uh, that they will do better. Or in this article from the International Journal of Mental Health, Religious education can contribute to adolescent mental health in school settings. Or that the effects of an actively pra practiced faith 
protect a child's mental well-being even more so than the peer support they get from their friends or the support structures that a school might put in place for them, as published in this article, again from the NIH, in, called Religion and Depression in Adolescence. And yet in the craziness of this world, we have decided that we are going to fix the rising emotional and mental issues of this world by stripping out religious education, ostracising children who are Christians by shaming them for not conforming to the LGBTQ agenda for the world. And to formalise support systems that specifically exclude the truths of the Bible. We have the data, and yet in the craziness of our world, we choose to legislate exactly the opposite thing, and we're still surprised when things go pear-shaped. It is utter foolishness, even from a secularist perspective. And so today we have a choice to make. As people living in this world, will we choose to abide in Jesus, to, embra to embrace him despite all the craziness of the world, to embrace what they would call foolishness, being out of touch, being on the wrong side of history? Will we choose to cling to the rock of Christ in the midst of this storm, knowing that one day this choose, uh, choice will, will have been proven to be wise? to be in touch and on the right side of history? Will we do that? That's one option. Or will we choose to abide in the world, to embrace its wisdom, to reject the truth of Scripture, to being on the right side of secular history? It is 2024 after all. But on the last day, that choice will be proven to be utter foolishness. And we, along with the devil to whom we would belong, would be thrown into the lake of fire. You can choose that, but it would be foolishness. You have a choice to make today, friends. Will you abide in Jesus? Let me pray. Lord, as we come to you, we pray that we will be renewed in our minds and our spirits, that we will see again the truth of the beauty, the truth and the beauty of what you have written to us in your word. Lord, we confess that it's hard to trust uh, in, in the truth of Scripture when everything else in our world tells us again and again and again that we should reject it, should jettison it, should throw it out because we're just on the wrong side of history. But Lord, as we have seen even again this morning, that you know that you know what you were doing when you gave us these guidelines and guardrails for truth in the world. We pray that you will give us the strength to trust in you, to cling to you, to abide in you, even though sometimes it feels like desperately clinging to a rock in the middle of a storm. Thank you, Lord, that we know that one day it will be far more like spending time with a friend for all eternity. Give us that vision to, uh, to empower us to live this out every day, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.